Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. My guest today is me. Yep, it's my first ever and possibly only ever solo episode. From this episode, you'll learn a little more of my story, my take on storytelling and universal forces and how I employ them, along with ideas about how I came to spirituality and understand it within a larger context. I woke up at 2 a.m. last night drenched in sweat, throwing bedding off of me. Every pet was also on top of me, which probably didn't help. Many nights, I have the opposite problem, where I'm hunting in the hall closet for extra blankets in the wee hours because I'm freezing. In part, this is because my husband and I have wildly different sleep temperature preferences, and I'm cold because he's left all the sliding doors in our house wide open. But there's actually a solution I've come to learn. And I'm all about a sleep solution because we know how important good, uninterrupted sleep is for every facet of health. Have you heard about ChiliPad by SleepMe? It's a bed cooling system designed to revolutionize the way you sleep naturally. The ChiliPad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. You can also choose a different setting than your partner, so you each get what you need. What I want? A cool mattress with piles of blankets on top. ChiliPad believes sleeping at the optimal temperature helps people naturally reach their highest potential physically and mentally, Visit www.sleep.me slash thread to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code thread. This offer is available exclusively for pulling the thread listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep. S-L-E-E-P dot me slash thread because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Hi friends, this episode is slightly different. It's a solo episode. I have never attempted anything like this before. In fact, I have deep ambivalence about it. And I only recently learned the definition or etymology of ambivalence, which doesn't mean neutrality, which is what I had always thought, but it means having an equal attraction and repellence to something. (laughs) And so I find myself here talking to you all. And Growing up the way that I did, I'm not a performer. I was never really a stage seeker or someone who imagined my life talking to other people. And in a way, I think podcast is my format and books, obviously, because I get to be a voice whispering in people's ears. And in my cozy hooded sweatshirt, hiding. But I think, as I've talked about this in the past, that this is something that a lot of people can relate to, which is the difference between interior work and or work that's not really seen. 
And then the fear that so many of us, particularly women, have about bringing ourselves out into the world in a more visible way. This, of course, dovetails closely with the book that I've written, specifically the chapter about pride, which is really about how scary it can be to be seen. And obviously, we have so many cultural examples, again, particularly for women. And for those who don't know, my book is called On Our Best Behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good. It's coming on May 23rd from Dial Press, Penguin Random House. And I have ghostwritten 12 books now, many, many bestsellers across so many different categories. It's actually... <laughs> It's it's funny in summation because you would look at the books that I've ghostwritten or co-written and have no conception of who I am as a person. And I like that. That's that's the idea of ghostwriting. It's an egoless project. You put yourself completely aside and your job really is to structure the thoughts and ideas of other people and to bring them into the world. And ghostwriting I love and I will probably continue to do it throughout my career because it's really interesting to access other people's audiences and platforms, surely, but also their minds. And it's not always, nor does it necessarily need to be a Venn diagram. I don't always see the world in exactly the same way. And I will add pastime, which I did as a secondary job while I had a full-time career was in some ways a way for me to be in touch with that creative impulse in me without owning it or taking credit for it or being a visible presentation of it in the world. And I'm, I'm 43 now. I'm at the age where I actually am like, am I 43? Am I 42 or 44? I, I think I'm 43. I'm pretty sure. And it's taken me the first half of my life, well, hopefully what is the first half of my life, I hope I'm still here for several decades, to feel even a modicum of comfort in standing aside or standing next to my work or standing with my work. And it took me a long time to get there. And that's not a path that I would necessarily recommend for everyone. I think part of the impulse of my book is to speed this along for women or to make us conscious of the ways that we naturally suppress ourselves. And there are good reasons, I want to be clear, that we do this. There are lots of good cultural reasons, the way that women are policed and shot out of the sky being one of them. This is what the chapter on Pride is specifically about. And then it obviously starts crashing into all of the other sins, which are, in case you need a reminder, sloth, envy, pride, greed, gluttony, lust, anger. And I also include in the book a chapter about sadness, which was on the original list, but then dropped for unknown reasons. And I have, I have my theories about why, and we'll talk about that more down the road. But when I think about my life leading up to this point and the way it's interesting, and this is why I also love podcasts, and I'm so grateful that I've had the career that I've had where I've been able to follow my curiosity 
and follow my intuition. I was going to say instinct, but I think it's more of an intuition about what people need or what they're interested in or where we're going and how to provide context for that. Yes, I'm a very verbal thinker, but I'm also a systems thinker, I think. In talking to Temple Grandin, that's how I would assign myself. I like to understand the whole picture and the full context because I think it gives shape or grounding to our own individual experiences as where we are as a collective. So early on, and it's funny, I mean, I started, for for, for context, I started my career at Conde Nast as a magazine editor. I worked at Lucky Magazine, Rest in Peace, which was a magazine about shopping. And it's funny because in some ways, like that level of materialism is pretty far from where I find myself today. I learned so much working there and so much from the brilliant editor-in-chief, Kim France, who's has an incredible mind, and she's an amazing writer. She was a music journalist, and she really drilled into all of us several ideas. One, you have to figure out what makes it relevant and stop throat clearing and get to the point. Like, what's the revelatory element of this handbag amongst a sea of handbags? What is it? And I know that sounds silly, but it was so such a helpful tool because throughout my career, I think it taught me how to really dig for the the jewel and to find it and elevate it and make it make it the point. And then also the whole premise of Lucky, which was quite revolutionary at the time, was to make a magazine <laughs> for ourselves and our friends with the idea that friends of friends would also then like whatever it was that we were making. And Lucky Magazine at the time was like the most successful launch ever, even though everyone thought it was a Magalog or they were quite disdainful about it. But readers loved it because they really found themselves in those pages. And it was a totally different, it was an industry defining magazine. It was a blog in some ways before blogs. So Kim taught me about the importance of starting with yourself and that you should never create content or try to put a message out in the world thinking about, oh, her name is Emily and she lives in Atlanta and she has 2.2 children. And that's typically how content was made or magazines were made. And Kim really defied that and started with where we were. And I'm so grateful for that lesson. Not that it wasn't my natural instinct, but she really gave us permission to start there and that's how I've I've led my career is if it's resonant for me, I'm thinking it's probably resonant for other people. If it's something that seems to be present amongst the women I know, then I'm guessing it's present amongst the women that they also know. And over time, success in that has confirm for me. That's the other side of my ambivalence about doing a solo podcast. There's enough reassurance that many of us are sort of on the same wavelength or hitting the same vibrational tones that I've built confidence in my career to follow that intuition and to keep pushing and going and that there are a lot of people who are with me following that same instinct. And I just, I want to I want to talk about just briefly what that's in contrast to, because we see this in our media world and how fractured it is. 
because there's sort of two strains. There are more, but with the way that I think about it is that you can either tap into the collective unconscious and move the conversation in that direction, or you can tap into an idea or theology about what's relevant. You can use search trends and you can, you know, it's funny, I was working on a roundup of books about narcissism for Oprah Daily, and I've been reading a lot of books about narcissism, and it's the market right now is glutted with sort of self-published, SEO-driven narcissism books. So that's one example. It's it's like there's sort of a schism, and, and no offense to anyone who self-publishes, but these are certainly, they're written against the metadata. They're written f- to fulfill a need, but more to take advantage of an opportunity. And Again, not necessarily assigning judgment to that, but that's, in my mind, the two ways that people do content. You're either feeding something that's showing up in the data, or you are trying to stride in fresh fresh lawns. And I try, of course, I try for the former, not because I care about what's next or new. It's not about hitting trends. It's about understanding or staying connected to that knowing or intuition about what people need and who might have that intelligence, knowledge, wisdom to share. And what's also what what I think is also follow the track of my life is for anyone who's roughly my age, we've probably been through some things, some transitions, right? Some hard things in our lives in a way that Sometimes when I do an audit, you know, of the past decade, and I have it pretty good, let's be clear, but when I do an audit, I'm like, wow, a lot of things have happened. And I'm sure many people who are listening can relate to this. As, as In some ways, some positive, some negative, but nothing is ever binary like that. I think that's part of a midlife understanding is that there's nuance to every situation, the things that you're supposed to feel incredibly happy about can feel like a bag of rocks sometimes. And to quote that Mary Oliver poem, sometimes there's a great gift in a, in a box of darkness. And part of life, I think, is understanding that emotional wave and learning how to, to ride it, to not only ride it, because I think so much of us are looking for more than managing at this point. We're looking for growth or to get, again, growth is another word that culturally has lots of baggage, but we're looking to get bigger, I guess, to get bigger, to feel in some ways more stable. And for me, it's been leaning on my curiosity as that central or core trait. And when things happen and that are in opposition to my desire to control everything that happens because I as I love certainty and fixity as much as everyone else but that has been my antidote is to stay curious and I think it's funny I hear this a lot too people I have a very open mind not so open that my brains are going to fall out to quote my friend Jennifer Walsh but my mantra is I don't know and I particularly in recent years, after my sense of certainty has really been derailed again and again and again to the point where I recognize the wisdom of uncertainty and the stance of curiosity 
of exploration rather than expectation, to quote Carissa Schumacher. I think that that curiosity is, you know, my primary form of inspiration. And I made a a video about this recently, and this is something that Chris has talked about. I don't believe we talked about it in our recent episode. But inspiration has two components. It has its accelerator, or this is the way I think about it, an accelerator and a brake. And intuition has inspiration, which is those moments when we feel like we're really tapping into something or an idea is forming in us, gestating us that needs to come out. It might be an insight or piece of information about a situation, a place, a thing, a gut feeling, however you want to conceive of intuition, a nod from God, a push, etc. Everyone has their own concept, I think, for understanding it. And then the, the break is discernment. And clearly, we have a little bit of a discernment problem or underdeveloped discernment culturally. And discernment's really important, not only in terms of deciding what generally feels like it's more full of light than full of darkness, but also what feels right specifically for you. And I think a lot of us have never learned how to run things through our bodies. Is that a yes for me? Is that a no for me? And to recognize, too, when we're giving away our sovereignty to teachers, gurus, religious leaders, whomever it may be, to say, again, like I'd say the stance for me, at least, is open-minded curiosity, running my discernment and making sure that my foot is on that pedal as well. Because, and this is a whole nother topic, and maybe if this solo episode does well, I'll do a whole nother one on power, but really understanding, particularly in the context of teachers or information, like what is this, what energies is this also carrying? And is this safe? And is this something that I want in my life before I let it in? Vet bills can be expensive, but Spot Pet Insurance can give you up to 90% cash back on vet bills so you can worry less about high vet bills. Yep. Up to 90% cash back on vet bills for unexpected accidents, illness, and even routine care. And with Spot Pet Insurance plans, you can go to any vet you want in the U.S. or Canada. There's no network you need to stick to, so visit your favorite vet and you can save money on expensive vet bills. That's Spot Pet Insurance. It's no wonder Spot is America's favorite pet insurance. Visit SpotPet.com for a free quote today. For all terms, visit spotpetins.com slash sample dash policy. Spot pet insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produce Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. This is an independent ad from Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. So if you guys haven't noticed, this particular, and if you listen to this podcast, this is all familiar language to you. But the other question I get all the time, particularly in the context of my book, on our best behavior, the seven deadly sins and the price women pay to be good is, are you religious? And I'm part of that quite significant. I think it's maybe the largest segment of the population. I consider myself spiritual, not religious. I'm not affiliated with any belief system. And It's interesting, too, how hard it is, even though it's so abundantly clear and it's present in everything that I do. And I'll talk a little bit more about what I even mean by by spirit or, or what that means to me, because I grew up in 
a pretty intellectual family, a materialist, science, doctor, nurse duo. My mother is a lapsed Catholic. She wouldn't even call herself lapsed. She would call herself recovering. She has a lot of fear about organized religion. She's probably could, would classify herself as almost intolerant about it. There was a lot of fear when I was a child that somehow I would become born again or, you know, that that somehow I would fall into the grips of organized religion. This was like a palpable fear that my mother had based on a pretty some pr- pretty traumatic things from her childhood. And my dad is Jewish, although he's not observant. He grew up in South Africa by way of um, Germany. His, his father's German. His mother's Polish. They moved to South Africa in the 30s. And my father... I don't, it's interesting. He's a very intuitive doctor. He's retired now, but he had no, didn't pass on a conception of God, but wasn't stridently opposed to anyone's belief system either. And so I grew up going to some Jewish services in a Methodist church, and I really loved the stories and was very intellectual for me. It wasn't a felt experience. I was like, God seems kind of mean and wrathful and very judgmental and scary. And I didn't necessarily feel any connection whatsoever. I did, however, feel I grew up in Montana. I had horses and I felt a profound connection to nature and horses and animals. I felt like I could actually speak to horses, very good with horses or animals. And I I had two revelations when I was a child. One, this was a constant throng, and it sounds like a very odd admission, but I, as a child, I always knew I had this feeling of, oh, this again. And I had a feeling of impatience about my childhood and irritation that I was back. And it's not that I necessarily understood a concept of having past lives, but this feeling that I had of like, I cannot believe I'm doing this again. And I, can't, I just need to like get to the work. I need to get to the work. Followed me throughout my childhood. And I didn't really know what that meant. I just had that sensation throughout my, <laughs> my life of, oh, I can't believe I have to do this again. And then the other thing that I learned Really not, it took me a minute. It took me until my 20s, but I was playing with these sort of forces of the universe. And I started to play with momentum and this idea that, and it sounds quite obvious, obviously, but it takes us a while because I think many of us grew up thinking, oh, you just, you work hard and you're seen and then you're elevated and people pick you for these things. And I didn't understand until maybe my late teens early 20s, that no, the universe conspires with you. It doesn't select you. You're not special, but it conspires with you when you put yourself in motion. And so I started playing with that energy of moving into a level of activity or engagement that's kind of hard to, I just, I would call it the opposite of passivity. I had to move myself out of what I would now classify as thinking again, along certain lines of like, you do these things and then certain things happen to know actually there's like a level of 
now I would call it spiritual engagement with the universe, where you, this is an interplay. And it's not about being picked. It's not about being special. It's not about being the one. It's about moving into what's available for you, building momentum on that, and then paying attention and walking through doors as they open and also creating, starting to develop that discernment. Is this a yes for me? Is this a no for me? And I also, I did exceptionally well. I sort of peaked as a child in many ways, like I was a nationally ranked freestyle skier, which is moguls. Like I was, I think, first in the country when I was a kid, which sounds more grand than it was. But I was a very good skier. I was really advanced in math. I just did really well academically, which won't surprise you because I'm kind of a dork and I grew up in the country reading and teaching myself how to type really fast and all of these like... (laughs) Things that I don't see my children doing. I'll just put it like that. You know, and I went to boarding school. I went to Yale, et cetera. So I was a high achieving child. It started to get hard and I wasn't getting things as easily as I had when I was a child. That's when I really started to understand the universe and that what is not for you is not for you. And it's better to not... You can be sad, but acceptance is better. It doesn't mean that you have to like it. But there are certain jobs I didn't get that at the time were devastating. And then I only ended up getting something that made far more sense, but might be significantly less prestigious, for example. Those early days were the first, for the first time that I really understood that I was working with something. I was working with some sort of democratic, universal energy. This was not about me. This was about an efficiency, I almost want to say, of like, you can make this really more difficult through rumination and clinging and fighting, or you can start to get a little bit more flexible in the way that you engage with life. And you go not on the path of least resistance, but you go where there's flow. You move with life. You swim, but you let it provide direction in a way that will only make sense to you. And as I mentioned, it's like I I started at a magazine about shopping. I worked for Time Out New York, which was an incredibly fun job and something in retrospect that I needed because it taught me how to write incredibly fast. I was editing 14 pages a week, which when you move from a monthly magazine and you're editing for a month. It's a very different experience. With the internet, it all is very different now, obviously. All of my experiences throughout my career, I worked at a very unglamorous internet company for a while, an incredible learning experience. But when I think about all of them, at the time, I was like, I don't know if this makes sense, but this is where I'm feeling like I need to go. And I'm moving into this phase. And then after, I was like, wow, that was an incredibly important lesson for me typically all really positive lessons. But like every time I rec- I could recognize in retrospect, oh, I'm being outfitted with a new school s- skill set, or I'm learning a different facet about a different facet of the world that is incredibly useful and I would never have gotten this education any other way. And so again, this goes to sort of my spiritual understanding, which only came to develop what you would consider sort of a more faith or religious aspect really honestly in the last six years. And I write about this in in my book, so I won't go into it in too much detail, but 
my best friend died six years ago. He was my brother's husband, Peter. And I met him when I was a sophomore in high school, no, junior in high school. And he was one of my soulmates, certainly. And I'm not alone in feeling that way about Peter. He was a very special person. And I'm not a particularly sentimental person either, just for what it's worth. And Peter died and really for the first time, it's funny, in my in my previous job, I had, you know, just sort of party trick played around with like, I'd talk, I'd spoken to some intuitives and I didn't own any tarot decks. Like I just wasn't, I wasn't who you <laughs> might perceive me to be today. I just, I was interested and curious, but it, there was no pressing need for me to feel like I needed to understand the darker parts of life. Things I just wasn't there. And when Peter died, I met Laura Lynn Jackson. I had a number of experiences through people like that, but also on my own, where I really was like, wow, this is, there is something, the, the, the scene world is becoming more and more increasingly clear to me. I'm obviously very interested in culture and all of that programming and why we are how we are. And that was my first instance, though, of really wanting to understand the unseen and how something I had ideas about death or life that needed to be overturned, but it just completely blew open. I had no fixed beliefs, but it completely blew open my mind in terms of, wait, hold on, if I'm still feeling Peter's presence, if he's still available to me in some way, what does that mean? What does that mean in the context of our experience here on earth? What are we doing here? Where do we go? Is this what I came to understand to be earth school, where we are evolving, learning, growing, and then we come back and we do it again? And that's when this experience that I had as a child, I was like, oh, that's why I always had that sensation of like, why am I back? I am I back? I thought it was done. High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at LLS dot org slash students. That's LLS dot org slash students. And so it really started with Laura, this interest and consciousness, this wanting to understand the different dimensions of energy, and the tuning in of different frequencies. And so she gave me an incredible gift in that moment. And then simultaneously, as I started to look for signs and just open myself up more to communication from the universe, 
which was a, a, a shift. Again, I knew I was working with the universe, but I wasn't – it was more of an internalized experience. And so in this next evolution, I was turning myself out a little bit more, tuning in a little bit more. And it's a long story, and I won't I won't bother you, but even the way that I came to Laura was like a, a weird nudge from the universe by way of an email that showed up in my inbox flagged. I'm just giving an example of like a technical or like a physical manifestation of a, a universal moment of being like, pay attention to this. And similarly, in my previous job, I used to get, and I still do, I guess, almost every every galley press copy of any book that's sort of remotely part of my wheelhouse. And there was a book on my desk and I looked at it and I was like, that is not for me. And then I couldn't put it on the giveaway pile. I just couldn't put it on the giveaway pile. And I kept looking at it and I picked it up and it had been blurred by Glennon Doyle. This is before Untamed. I hadn't read Glennon at that point, but I was like, oh, this is sort of interesting. And I I just picked it up. I just opened it. It was Mary Magdalene Revealed. It was by Megan Watterson. And it was a dramatic retelling of the story of Mary. It's a part, it's part memoir. And Megan is a Harvard Divinity School student, theologian, feminist, and who's become a really dear friend. And essentially... The book is about her own pathway through Christianity and the recognition that Mary Magdalene, you know, represents a missing element. The Gospel of Mary Magdalene is one of the Gnostic Gospels. So in the fourth century, when the New Testament was canonized by the powers that be in Rome, a bunch of Gospels, really beautiful Gospels, were kicked out and essentially ordered to be destroyed. The belief is that various monks preserved copies of these Gospels and buried them. And it's only in recent centuries, really in the last century, that these Gnostic Gospels have been discovered. And there are, I believe, two copies, two partial copies of the Gospel of Mary that have been recovered. The same pages, I think, are missing from both, which is really interesting. And Elaine Pagels, who's at Princeton, wrote the Gnostic Gospels in, I think, 1979. It was a bestseller. It's also a brilliant book. And this was like, I don't, for some reason, this cracked open something in my mind. And I recognize like, oh, religion, Christianity, these systems of belief, and obviously now I've gone like quite deep, not I'm not a theologian at all, and I'm not particularly interested in the Gospels. We'll get to that. But I recognized that, oh, religion is something that humans have made, and there's this original text, these original wisdoms that are still sort of floating in the ether. And the way that it's been passed down to us is a very different version than how it was potentially intended or what the original impulse was, which is just interesting to me, the way that society and faith have converged and then crafted all of these containers that we've taken wholesale, right? And I bring up Mary Magdalene because, you know, what she talks about in her gospel, and for anyone who doesn't know, it's worth reading 
Megan's book or Cynthia Bergeau on, Meg- on Mary Magdalene. It's really historically actually fascinating because what the Gospel of Mary is talking about, and, all, and all, a lot of this is in my book as, as a cultural container, but what she's talking about is that God is an inner experience, and her gospel is Jesus talking to her post-resurrection, explaining essentially the path back to oneself. And he talks about, you know, do not look to any log. There is no such thing as sin. A lot of really incredible statements. And the thesis of this gospel is everything that you have is inside. This is an internal experience. And don't do anything that's adulterous to your nature, essentially. And by that, he meant that's sort of in disobedience to who you to really are. It's like your job to figure out who you really are. That's how I interpret this gospel, which is beautiful and completely different than I think how religion has been passed down to many of us. And again, I think I, because I didn't grow up in any tradition, I have a slightly different perspective. I'm not breaking any um, – the only rule I'm breaking in my family is by being <laughs> interested in all of this, although my brother was also a comparative religion major, so there's that. But I'm not criticizing anything that's been sacred to me or my family. I'm just curious about what I perceive to be actually a cultural institution. And the reason that I say that I think it's a cultural institution is, one, I think that religion is so inherent to who we are as a people and as a world that it is a cultural institution. It's, it's part of us, whether we subscribe to it or not. It is in our language, it's in our belief systems. And again, this is beyond conscious awareness. So one, it's cultural. But I also, in my own evolution of faith, as I've followed and read a lot of wisdom teachers and various, who are essentially all saying the same thing, whether it's Llewellyn Von Lee, who's a Sufi mystic, or Carissa, who channels Yeshua, and yes, that's Jesus or Christ consciousness or Cynthia Bergeau, who's an incredible Episcopalian priest or Father Richard Rohr, is that the call right now, particularly in this strange moment in time, is to recognize that there is some sort of animating impulse, God, the universe, nature, whatever you want to call it that it's not something that can be necessarily compartmentalized. God is in everything. God is in all of us. And there's no sort of like penance. There's no, oh, you go to church or temple, and then here's your ordinary everyday life. What all of these people are saying is essentially, this is who we are. It's like an undeniable reality. It's not a question of like what you believe in or how adherent you are to your faith. This is just... There's a divinity baked into all of us. And sort of the sooner we reckon, and and also that there are all these false binaries or these these systems set up as oppositional when really it's like, I've been listening to a lot of physicists on Krista Tippett's podcast on being like Carlo Rovelli and they might all say that they're atheists, but they're all what we're learning about the universe and math is essentially an explanation of some of these. Uh, uh, they're saying the same thing as the mystics, I guess, is what I want to say. There are these mystical laws and rules that you'll find in all of these sacred ancient texts that we are 
now finding the math to articulate are our scientific containers expanding to understand you can put quantum physics in this category, et cetera. And we're all just using different language to describe what's happening in the world, but what's happening in the world is what's happening in the world, I guess is what I want to say. And my path has really been to understand how those unseen forces, whatever you want to call them, interact and what they're asking of us and how do we how do we live them and how do we co-create with them and how do we bring them down and into our lives. And I know that sounds kind of heady, but I have a feeling that many of you will know exactly what I'm talking about. So it's not so much for me. My my faith, my spirituality isn't so much like this is my belief system. It is more a question of having faith that there are forces, powers, energies beyond the seen world that are benevolent, loving, attempting to sort of help us on our higher path, to move the collective along. And there are also denser, more energetic forces at place too. I wouldn't say, I don't, I don't know about evil, and I don't believe in places like heaven and hell, but there are lots of forces in the universe, I guess, is what I would say. And I think that the benevolent, loving, light-filled ones are um, the more powerful ones. Pulling the Thread is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes Max, my oldest, tells me he wants to go in the back of the house and talk. What he means by this is purely the verb. He doesn't want to have a conversation. He wants to talk to vent and unload, to fill me with factoids, mom, want to know 40 things about acid rain, but more often to get things off his chest. It's fascinating to listen to him and what he perceives to be injustices, annoyances, and harms. I recognize that in those moments, he doesn't want advice or for me to higher mind him or for me to justify his own feelings to him, but simply to be a container for the one-sided stream, to just listen. I recognize what he's doing because I do it every week too, in therapy. I was thinking just the other week that it's rare to find someone who will just listen, maybe point out some patterns or hold me accountable when I say something wild. Wait, Elise, pause. Do you really feel that about yourself? Or why do you think you care about this so much? But aside from these moments of intervention when my therapist makes me reflect or feel, I'm doing the talking, and it helps me feel so much freer. Thank God for therapy. This is one of the reasons I'm very excited for therapeutic solutions like BetterHelp. They have licensed therapists who are available worldwide and specialize in depression, anxiety, sleep disturbances, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQA issues, grief, and self-esteem. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com PTT today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash P-T-T. I want to just read you guys a quote by Alan Watts, which I think is the best summation of the difference between belief and faith. So this is Alan Watts, who wrote in The Wisdom of Insecurity, Whether one believes in God or believes in atheism, we must here make a clear distinction between belief and faith, because in general practice, belief has come to mean a state of mind, which is almost the opposite of faith. Belief, as I use the word here, is the insistence that the truth is what one would lief or wish it to be. The believer will open his mind to the truth on condition that it fits in with his preconceived ideas and wishes. Faith, on the other hand, is an unreserved opening of the mind to the truth, whatever it may turn out to be. Faith has no preconceptions. It is a plunge into the unknown. Belief clings, but faith lets go. In this sense of the word, faith is the essential virtue of science and likewise of any religion that is not self-deception. So I think that's so stunning. And that's why I think of myself as a person of faith and why my mantra is I don't know. Because to presume to know, to presume that I can order the universe or understand all of the powers at play or that I understand or know or can predict with absolute accuracy everything that's going to happen or that we live in some sort of mechanic, materialistic world is insane. And for me, there is far greater comfort in understanding that sometimes staying in that place of curiosity, openness, and exploration rather than expectation is the safe place to be. And also, as mentioned, having had hard things happen in my life, sometimes things that we would never choose are the things that needed to happen. And that these things happen for us, even though in that cafeteria line, they're not the entree we would have ever picked. And again, that's a nuanced idea. I'm not suggesting that that someone near to you dying is happening for you. But to go to that Mary Oliver quote, there can be a gift in that box full of darkness. But... I think systems of belief system, I I recognize why that level of order and certainty is very reassuring, as is this idea that you do a certain amount of things and you end up getting your reward, your just reward at the end. But as we all know, that is not life. Life is not a simple math problem. It's not algebra. It's far, far more complex. And I think staying... Because we don't need any more nihilists, right? But staying in that place of unreserved opening to life and to letting it unfold and recognizing that today is not a good judgment on the value of today, but that it's really only in retrospect that we can look back and understand why we took the path we did and the wisdom inherent in that and the detours and the cul-de-sacs. Very few of us like kind of hit it out of the park. But that's that's the space that I try to occupy. And when things don't happen that I want to happen, 
instead of going immediately into victimhood or fear or anxiety, I just try to go back to this, like, that's interesting. I guess that wasn't for me. Maybe something better, maybe something different. I'm just going to stay in a place of of faith. And it's not Pollyanna-ish either. It's just a, this is beyond me. And holding on and trying to be certain is only going to cause me a lot of pain as I come to understand the limits of what I can control, which isn't honestly very much. I can't even make my kids eat a full breakfast. Let's be honest here. And then I'll close just by saying that one of the other things that I've been writing about a lot and thinking about a lot is where these this binary, this, this idea of spirituality versus religion and I've heard a lot of people answer that question, and they'll say something along, you know, religion is a set of beliefs, spirituality is a practice of faith. And I think about it as religion is sort of what we do, and spirituality is what it is to be. And there are a lot of these false binaries that I think we're being asked to confront currently, like the binary of masculine and feminine, which a big that energy is a big part of my book on our best behavior as well. We're asked to, I think, consider that there's no binary between shadow and light. It's a whole nother topic that I would love to talk to you guys about. That one of the ones that I'm playing with right now is, it doesn't exactly fit, but it does in some ways, is, is this idea of wellness and wholeness and how I think culturally, and, and there's a lot of really wonderful parts of, of this move towards wellness. I do not want to devalue or criticize that at all. But in this move towards wellness, it's almost becoming religion, whereas I think we're being asked, or at least I feel called to stay in this place of seeking wholeness, which to me is the path within that construct that's focused on being and focused on self self-acceptance and focused on recovering parts of myself from shadow and feelings that there's not more for me to do now is the time where I am trying to learn how to be so that's another that's another big nut to crack but something that I'm I'm really interested in particularly because, well, that's my whole career and also in the space that I still occupy. And it goes back to this idea of discernment too. Then it goes back to Mary Magdalene and what she's preaching, which is it's so much easier. And it certainly goes back to the whole theme of my book. In that quest for certainty, in that desire to sort of do the right thing or get to the end or be good, we want some sort of exterior authority, some system of belief to confirm for us that we're following all the steps and checking everything off the to-do list. And that's a fallacy, certainly. But And, and I just feel like con- continually we need to remind ourselves that we need to be in this space of spirituality, of Mary Magdalene, of the work of wholeness. No one can do that for us. No one. And no one can tell us exactly what that looks like for us or what needs to be done to achieve that. It is deeply personal, internal work. And yes, I think we all have our own individual faith, our own individual sense of God, power, energy, universe. And that's great. 
I think that's the point. I think it's like all of these things are internal processes that, yes, there's ease and when when they become sort of cultural ideals, there's some value to that, certainly. But then we have to remember, like, it's never out there that we're going to find the answers that we need. It is only in here. And we have to sort of deprogram or detrain ourselves from thinking, from that type of thinking. If I just do all of these things, I'll be well. If I just do all of these things, I'll be good. If I just do all of these things, I'll certainly go to heaven or my life will work out exactly as planned and instead move to that internal co-creative place where we learn to both co-create with the world and, and God, I'll use that word, and come to understand and collect all parts of ourselves. I guess, too, what I'm ultimately saying is that there's no binary of faith or belief either. There's really no way to do this right. And I think you could say like the most atheistic scientists, many of these incredible physicists are still captivated by the same wonder and awe and probably the same I don't know mantra. And again, I don't know. It's just a place to rest, really, honestly. It's a place to rest outside of certainty. Try it. You might find it deeply, deeply comforting, even though it promises to resolve absolutely nothing. I'm going to leave you all with a quote from David Foster Wallace from This Is Water. He says, Not that that mystical stuff's necessarily true. The only thing that's capital T true is that you get to decide how you're going to try to see it. I'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. Please sign up for my newsletter. I promise I won't spam you. Or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunan to get updates on new episodes. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts, i.e. wherever you're listening right now. I also want to thank you in advance for sharing any episodes with friends you think might like the show, because that is how podcasts grow. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Serena Reagan, Mary-Kate McDonough, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week.